Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Team Novo Nordist podcast. I'm Zylan Fanake. With me is Tim Lindley. Both of us form part of the marketing team at Team Novo Nordist. Tim, how are you today? Good morning, Zylan. Good morning, everyone. I'm fine, thank you. A little bit chilly here in Tuscany at the moment, uh, but it's dry, so no complaints. It's nice to see you recovered and looking fresh because just over a week now that we've wrapped up uh, our training camp, in January in Altea, you were working like a dog there, a little short-staffed. I couldn't be there. We got other staff members um, on maternity leave. So you had to put in some hard work. Man, as I said, I owe you a big bottle of wine. No, man, you just have to get a good result of that up-and-coming Ironman. That'll be uh, that'll be payback enough. But yeah, it was <laughs> a good, so. uh, good pre-season camp down in Alicante, our usual spot in Altea. The usual spot for a lot of pro teams um, at this time of year. Um, great riding. The weather was really kind. All the team in high spirits. We were lucky enough to be joined by 30, em- 30 employees of our principal sponsor, Novo Nordisk, who came from around the world. They won an internal lottery within the company to come and spend time and ride with both the pros and the devos. Uh, so that was really good. It's the first time we've been able to do that particular activity since January 2020, since pre-COVID. Um, so that really tied it off in a nice way. That's really special because, you know, as an employee of Nova Nordisk, you might follow the team as a fan of the team. You follow the team from a distance and you sort of see racing and a bit of training on social media. But being there, you get to see firsthand, you know, what a training camp is, what goes into it, you know. Our invisible superheroes, swaneers and mechanics, how they work day in, day out, get everything ready for the riders, make decisions on the fly, um, adapt and react to situations that that come up. And then ultimately go out and ride and, and, and see how strong these riders are and how special they are, how, you know, you as an employee may be suffering up a climb and our riders aren't even warmed up, you know, and, and they're just looking after you. So I can imagine it was very special. I think it's one of the best aspects um, is getting to see the, the behind the scenes. And it's also one of the the most common comments that came out of it when you're speaking direct to the employees is, the, is seeing what goes on and everything from the prep, from the mechanics to the swan years with the post-ride rub downs, preparing the bottles in the morning. And one guy was, he couldn't believe that everybody was down outside the truck at seven o'clock in the morning, preparing for the up and coming training ride, which was starting two hours later. So when they see that, they also get an idea of what goes into races, um, you know, and giving these guys all the support they need to go and perform at the maximum. Um, So I think it was really beneficial for them and insightful. Speaking of races, um, our season's been delayed. We were meant to start the season in Tour of Antalya, but obviously a devastating earthquake that has taken place there, rightfully so, the, and understandably so, the race has been cancelled. So our first race of the season will be Tour de Rwanda now. Um, but yeah, I'm sure the guys are in good form and, and ready to get going. Yeah? Man, it's awful um, what's happened in Turkey and Syria and obviously we all our messages of support uh, to everybody out there going through it and yeah it's a shame to lose the first race but the guys have just done an intense performance camp the, every training plan was broken down exactly with racing in mind and coming up within a few days since the closure of the camp so the guys are ready Tour de Rwanda as you know is a massive race for us really important um, not just for performance but for the whole community um, 
the fans are incredible out there. I know the boys are always excited to go back um, and race and enjoy the experience. And I think particularly riders like David, um, who's done well in Rwanda in the past, won a stage there. He's very, very motivated to do well again this time. Yeah, you mentioned earlier my Ironman uh, that I'm doing. I've been training well for it. And I've actually been talking to Giovanni, one of our coaches, because he's been very interested in helping me and getting faster on the bike. And that's the benefits of being part of a pro team. Our sponsors, uh, Training Peaks, you know, the training platform we use. I shared with him my training files, how my fitness charts are. And then he very tongue-in-cheekly sent me, uh, showed me some screenshots of the riders' training files and showed me how an actual athlete's training files should look. Um, so I can, I can see that the guys are firing and they've been putting the hard yards over winter. So definitely looking forward to joining the team in, in Tour de Rwanda. We were there last year, special time. Um, full co-founder and CEO is coming out for a couple of stages this year. Special place for us as a team and definitely... Looking forward to getting the season underway there. Um, Tim, should we get to this week's uh, guest? We are talking to Logan Fippen. Logan's probably a favorite of mine and yours in terms of just a professional athlete to work with. You know, you get some athletes who are really, really good on the bike. And then you get athletes who are good on the bike. And they're also incredible in front of sponsors, in front of media. They carry themselves well. They're really intelligent. And would you agree if I said Logan is one of those? Uh, Logan's an absolute legend um, and I don't think you'll mind us saying it either he, without giving too much away about his story he's it, inspiring the guy didn't give up he was part of the Devo setup for a long time uh, he turned pro pretty late 28-29 with the full senior pro team and I remember the first year he turned pro was at the, just in the peak of COVID um, and so he came to us at the Rhodes training camp which was a closed camp uh, just the pro team there, real bare bones of staff. And I've never seen someone so excited to to get his first pro equipment, the, the new bike, get out and train on it. Like everyone else was rolling out of bed and he was down there banging on the mechanic's door. Like, is it ready yet? I want to get out on it. And the, the guy, the, the feeling, his exuberance, his enthusiasm for every single part of the job is absolutely mind-blowing. He's, he's brilliant. Love working with him. Yeah, absolutely love his story. Like you say, never gave up. Um, was working in in a super supermarket store in America at the time that he was diagnosed. He talks about that in his interview. He talks about after being diagnosed, subsequently finding out one of his co-workers also has type 1 diabetes and opened up about that, something he didn't know before. And how soon after that he started riding um and to where we are today professional cyclists at the highest level so i hope you are inspired by his story as we are and hope you enjoy this interview with logan fippen logan fippen welcome to the team nova Nordis podcast where are you today hey zylan thank you for having me on today i am in tarragona spain and um, specifically montrose del camp which is a, a little town just uh, down the coast from Barcelona, about an hour-long drive. And as an American, you, um, you seem to love living there. You've obviously chosen to base yourself there because of your career being a professional cyclist with Team Novo Nordisk. What is that, you know, to experience a whole new culture and to live out your dream, I'm guessing, you know, as a pro bike rider in Spain? Yeah. I mean, for me, it is really the fulfillment of a lifelong dream that I've had. And uh, even as a little kid, I just knew that 
my life wouldn't be happening in the United States. And so there's always this urge and this impulse to be living in Europe. And of course, as a young man, like I was thinking more of like around Italy, but I always wanted to be close to the water. And, um, and so now through uh, the career that I have with the team, being able to do that is really, uh, you know, brings me to a, a good state of fullness and, um, Yeah, I just love it. And specifically with Spain as well, you know, obviously there's a huge language barrier. And because it's not like in Barcelona where so many people speak English, especially around the touristy areas down here in Tarragona, like English is pretty far and few in between. And uh, so that was like a huge curve and was honestly so intimidating and kept me from doing, you know, my normal things that I do in the U.S. as easily as I normally would. And, um, but at the same time, it also gave me a huge perspective on all the families that come to the U S and migrate to the U S, you know, in, in hopes of living their better lives. Cause I remember in the area where I grew up in the U S there are always, um, Hispanic immigrants who were coming in and, you know, they weren't, they didn't know the language. You could see that there'd be struggles here and there, especially in like, uh, just doing basic things like going to the bank, getting groceries. And you'd encounter that and you'd always be like, wow, how is it, you know, you know, you come to a new place, you don't know the language. And now having that little bit of experience myself, is just like, oh my God, the amount of respect that you have for these people who really risk it all to move out and try to fulfill something for themselves is immense. Amazing, man. Perspective is everything in life. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, so are you serious? Was that a dream of yours as a kid to live in Europe? yeah it was yeah like ever since i was little little kid that i wanted to live in europe and i don't you know i don't really know why exactly but it was just you know the feeling that i had that that's what i wanted to do whenever i would envision my future it would always be out here and uh not in the united states and do you speak any spanish now Yeah, uh, I can I can get by, you know, my my day to day life and, you know, get things done, go to my appointments and uh, speak to people. Um, and, you know, that's really like something that I've had to just lean into, you know, because it is so uncomfortable to go into like a public space and be like, I can't adequately communicate what I want to. But when I go in and like have to put have to put in the effort just to like make it, then it's helped improve the language skills so much. And especially when you're just observing these people, like if I'm in a cafe out on a terrace and you hear these conversations happening to just look and get the context for certain phrases. And you can, I can kind of learn and put together the strands of thought and word to uh, communicate. <laughs> so yeah, I can speak a little bit more Spanish now, but still like there's still a long ways to go to be fluent. But isn't that the beauty of, something like being a professional cyclist, like what your career has given you, exposing you to new cultures, you know, learning a language, that's, those are experiences and skills you're going to take with you for the rest of your life, even after you've retired. Oh, absolutely. I think that in that way, cycling is the best career in the world because your job involves so much travel and so much experience of the world and whether, and you know, it's, international experience, things that you just 
for example, like going to Eastern Europe and what it's like being in that kind of culture around that kind of food or with those kinds of people or being in Western Europe and you notice those subtle differences among people and the common things which bring them all together and you really just get to experience it as a part of your job. And that besides then being able to go out to the countryside and just tour around all these beautiful countries on the planet is just really like that's where it's at <laughs> in my well, opinion it's, well, it's the best the, job there is on the flip side of that i would have thought you would have hated traveling because often you're going there for racing 90 of the time i.e suffering so you are suffering yeah. in all these foreign countries pushing your body to the limits where your brain is like why am i doing this why are we doing this the body just wants to stop <laughs> don't you hate those countries sometimes you're like what am I doing? <laughs> You know, I think that that's like where you get, um, you know, to see a lot of the beauty of life where you do go into those very uncomfortable places within yourself. But then, you know, if you pop your head up and just open your eyes for a second, you realize, oh, my God, I'm in like the most beautiful landscape. I think like for me, the country that I kind of have a real love hate and I really love it. And I also hate it because I've suffered there so much is in Turkey. <laughs> and <laughs> like I have such a connection with that land and that territory there but then when it gets down to it and all the races that I've experienced there it's just so miserable and if I were to just like go deep into it it's just like well it's a fair trade I, I would say because you do get to have those tremendous experiences and see the incredible landscapes even when it's like through eyes of suffering. But again, it's like, you know, what's the alternative? It's like, I'm not going to go work a desk job <laughs> and try yeah. to do something where I can't be outside and I can't be traveling around the world doing what I love to do. And so it's really just a, it's pretty fair. It's pretty fair. Do you think that you've got this perspective because you were essentially diagnosed later on in life? I think you were diagnosed at 24 um so you had this dream as a kid you were a cyclist you know and then you know you had to go live a, a, let's call it a normal life before getting this mm -hmm. opportunity to become a professional cyclist later on in life do you think having that experience of everyday life before coming to this life that you have now sort of gives you that perspective of appreciating what you have now yeah i think it does and um you're right my path towards this where i'm at in my career now is pretty diverse you know i had been really you know highly involved in cycling and racing from a young age I, i was mountain biking first and then started road racing even later when i was 18. Um, so didn't do any of the junior racing at all on the road and then by the time that i was 21 22 i was racing at a pretty high level in the us and was beginning to think about reaching out to professional teams and had on a couple of occasions. And they're just like, you know, more time and experience in the, uh, the elite category. And, um, and then after some pretty bad injury, I had just kind of taken a hiatus. And during that period had gone into, you know, a completely different field of studies than um, yoga and meditation. And, you know, also then having to work like a day-to-day -day job, And um, then coming back into the sport is like, yeah, you, you, when you can keep with you all the experiences that you've had through life and know what it is to like 
work really hard at something and achieve it and really like stick to something you've put your mind on um, and kept your heart with, then you realize that every day that you get to continue experiencing that is like such a gift and something that is like a, you know, it's like a bounty. It's like, you've worked really hard to get this and now you get to watch it bloom. It's like fostering a garden in a way, you know, you work hard all year long just for a good set of crop. And then when that crop's ready to harvest, you're just like, hell yeah, <laughs> we get to enjoy this for the future as well. I'm curious, what is that day-to-day -day job that you worked? I worked in a, uh, well, I, I was working in a bike shop from like the ages of like 15 to 20. And then I worked in a grocery store in the US called Trader Joe's. And that was honestly like, I love cycling. Don't get me wrong. Like cycling is my favorite, favorite job, but Trader Joe's was my, <laughs> my favorite, happiest job <laughs> prior to this. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> because they just have a, a culture of um, working towards and creating an environment of uh, healthy, happy people. And through that, creating a, a store which has happy customers. And so, and plus, you know, you're encouraged to just be a total foodie and to know all these various foods because what's one of the unique things about Trader Joe's is they bring in food from all over the world. And as an employee there, you're, uh, they insist that you familiarize yourself with these foods and you know, these uh, ways of preparing them and sharing them with others. And so you're talking about bringing people together over food and you have an entire store whose objective is to just have a good experience around that. And it's like incredible. <laughs> it's so good. They should use this in an advert. I've never heard someone um, explain a grocery store in such a beautiful, <laughs> awesome way. <laughs> well, you know, it's a very unique environment over there. Very unique. I mean, you go into a Trader Joe's and you just know, you're just like, oh, wow, this is a special place. Everybody, everybody around here is just smiling, having a good day. Yeah. Didn't you? I remember you telling me a story about when you got diagnosed. Um, you had subsequently discovered that a colleague of yours there also had diabetes, but it wasn't until you got diagnosed that you found that out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I would have worked with this guy for months and, um, you know, there's nothing like apparently unusual about what he did on a day-to-day -day basis. And he was just, you know, normal, nice guy. And um, then after I was diagnosed, I came, I had taken time off, obviously, to just like get my bearings on this new life. And um, when I come, came back to work, um, I was talking to this colleague of mine and he was like, what, you were just diagnosed type one diabetic, man, I'm type one diabetic. I was like, what, man, I had no idea. How, how did we go so long without knowing this? Cause that's like, you know, at least from what I see now is like, it's, uh, can be pretty critical, you know, if you're going through your everyday life or just like knowing, you know, what, uh, you know, what to do if you get an occasion where it's like, he needs some attention or something, but he's just like, oh yeah, you know, I'm always walking around with fruit snacks in my pockets. And, you know, if you pay really close attention, you'll notice that like, I'm going for those time and again, that's just like incredible, incredible. I had no idea. But I think that it is actually that way a lot of times where it's like there has kind of been this stigma around 
having diabetes that you just don't really open up and share it. And I think now in the culture that we're living in, in the West, like there's real work being done to break down those walls and those stigmas to have more inclusivity for people who are dealing with various conditions and uh, states of health to, you know, try to bring people together more. And um, so I think that now, especially like with what the team's doing in our mission and working with um, Novo Nordisk as well to create more open messaging and to really bring people under a community umbrella of like, we're in this together is really critical because yeah, you just, you just never know. I was going to say that must have meant something to you, him opening up like that. All of a sudden you weren't alone, I'm guessing, and you, you felt there was someone you could maybe rely on who had a little more experience and that community must have been important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When you can have that relation with somebody, it, it really does improve the, uh, the relationship that you, that you have and you can really foster something special. How did your diagnosis come about? Well, um, I think that I'd really started to get the symptoms of it right when I was leaving India. And I remember that I had had like a last meal in uh, New Delhi and the subsequent days, I mean, obviously there was like a lot of rice and naan. And then the days after that was just feeling like really terrible. And, um, but then when I came back to the U S my health was just kind of gradually declining. And, um, what that looked like was just like, a pretty substantial amount of weight loss, you know, urinating all of the time and uh, developing into like, you know, leg cramps at night while sleeping. And it was quite interesting because the, the yogis have an explanation for this. They describe in their Ayurvedic system of medicine. And it's basically when you're going into these uh, tantric meditative states and you're performing all of their kriyas or specific uh, forms of concentration that it pulls so much from your, you know, your earth element or that element within your body, which keeps you grounded that uh, in order to feed what they call their ether element, or uh, in this, it's like your vata dosha is what they call it. And um by the process of doing that to such extremes that you would just be pulling from all of your fat stores. And what was interesting is like, Oh yeah, when you're in diabetic ketoacidosis, that's also what's happening. <laughs> it's all of your fat stores are being used just to try to moderate what's happening with your body. Um, but this was going on for quite a long time. I actually let it go like as long as I could, just because I didn't understand what was happening fully. And, um, and then there was one weekend where, I was with my mentor and I just could not, like, I could barely see and couldn't concentrate whatsoever. Couldn't formulate any thought. I was like going into the bathroom over and over again, just to like put cold water on the back of my neck, just to like be able to get through the day. And, um, then I was one of those afternoons. I was like out in the garden and, you know, had my hands in the earth, like working with the, with the plants and um, just like broke down into tears because it's just like, for me, there's just like this part of life, which I just been completely ignoring and not understanding. And that was like, you know, this body for one right now, which was really suffering and really going through it and needed attention and um, being close to the ground and working in the garden was just like, yeah, you need to be paying attention to this earth around you. 
and uh, this earth which you're embodied in and so then the next day like i woke up and like couldn't go to work i called out of work and began scheduling appointments to go get blood work done from the doctor and uh then i called my dad and my dad was just like son if you're feeling like this you need to just go to the hospital like now so i was like all right well fine i'll go to the i'll go to the er and what was funny is like as i was on i was being driven to the er by my then girlfriend and uh i was like googling all of my symptoms and i was like diabetic ketoacidosis and i was like ooh, <laughs> there you go that sounds that's like every symptom i've had says that and uh thank you webmd <laughs> and <laughs> they say to so, never google because it's always cancer you know it tends to be exactly cancer. exactly <laughs> yeah if, if you if you google it the chances well what was funny is like i went to the er and they took all my vitals and they're like wow you are messed up and then the uh, doctor came into the room and he's like we're gonna do uh, your analysis on you but look if we don't find anything you need to go in immediately and get a cancer screening and then you're just like wow and uh, then they did the urinalysis and it was like full of ketones and they were just like, looks like you're diabetic, my guy. And so, yeah, it was a pretty easy diagnosis, which uh, I was actually really grateful for. Like that was, that was, you know, basically as good as it could get. I was, yeah, I was, what I was were good. You, what was were you really feeling? <laughs> what were, did you have an understanding of the condition then, or had you just heard about it in passing? Well, I knew because, like, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, was type two diabetic, and you know, I'd hang out with him and like give him his occasional insulin shot, and you know, would watch him like always carry. We'd go hiking together all the time, and he'd always have like this little fanny pack full of candy, which I thought was awesome. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know because he'd share like these werther's uh caramelized you know little candies they're so good and but that was like the extent of my understanding i didn't really know how it was going to be you know living with it um so then it was really like a, a full you know full education on how to begin initiating a, a healthy life and basically the doctor put it as like a look you can either manage this well and live more or less a completely normal healthy life or you can not manage it and be dead by the time you're 40 if not have you know like renal failure you know be blind you know the the typical you know things that are expected with poor management of your diabetes and you were 24 at this stage, right? I was, yeah, it was a week after my 24th birthday. And the information that's flooding at you, that's coming at you, was that overwhelming? Or would you say you handled it quite okay? I, I think I ultimately handled it quite okay, but it was definitely overwhelming. And I remember like one incident that just comes to my mind when considering the question is like uh when i was in the icu and the uh the nurse was like oh wow it looks like you're uh, pretty late getting into this game and i was like well what do you mean i'm i'm really young <laughs> you know, <laughs> i've just i've just turned 24 and she was like yeah yeah but most people are just diagnosed when they're you know juvenile you know kids and i was like oh 
well, okay. Well, I guess then, yeah, I am late getting into it. Um, but then I guess the overwhelming thing is just like, for me at the time, what I was reconciling and coming to peace with was that, you know, basically without medical intervention, my life would be over, you know, because you know, your body just can't survive the diagnosis. Um, I mean, now we're fortunate to be living in the years where, you know, we have the technology, we have the insulin products available to help us. Um, but in terms of like just the natural lifespan, like it was over. And so reconciling that was, I think, the most difficult challenge. But for me, I was just like, well, all right, so we have this new life to live. And, uh, you know, we'll call it again, like a, a gift and an opportunity. And if I'm going to be doing and continuing to live my life with this, you know, constant medical support, then I'm going to just be really living into what my life's passions are and what my desires are from life. So then it was getting back in touch with little boy Logan. who just wanted to be a bike racer in Europe, <laughs> you know, childhood ambitions, the things which like propelled you through life as a kid. And that was the agreement that I had with myself. It's just like, I would pursue that to its end and, uh, you know, live life with some uh, integrity. Wow, I love the way you put that, man. Um, I do want to come back to that, achieving that lifelong goal. But I wanted to ask you, because you've been living with diabetes for six or seven years now, um, and you mentioned <clears throat> technology um, and it progressing and innovation. Like, what, have, what changes have you seen in the technology and how have they helped you in the management of the condition over the last six, seven years? Well, I think that there's uh, primarily been a huge upgrade in uh, the continuous glucose monitoring. And even from the time that I was diagnosed with that technology already existed, we're now seeing more upgrades in how it can perform, how it can be linked. I mean, now I don't personally use it, but I have friends and teammates who use like these uh closed loop systems between the cont continuous glucose monitor and their insulin pumps. And so, you know, they can basically set the levels that they want to be at and those, you know, pieces of equipment communicate with each other and keep you in good relative stability without your uh, interference, direct interference. And so having something like that, where you're basically, basically have like an external artificial pancreas, which is working together to help your body stay in good standing, that is like so incredible to me. And that is only, I think, been really available and on the market in just the past couple of years that, that you see that as a more, you know, possible thing. Um, so technology like that is really just remarkable. And I think now it's like, I think of this, especially more for like uh, young children who are getting diagnosed and, you know, there's so much responsibility that's put on the family as a whole to keep this child healthy and in good condition and to be able to have uh, technology and equipment like that that can ease that, you know, uh, I'll call it a burden, then that's just, I think, the, uh, the biggest, uh, biggest benefit for, you know, the, the young child, the family and the society. It just makes things so much easier. Man, I always say I'm so grateful for the era in which I was born in when you look at history and 
obviously we are here because of you know the giants that went ahead of us and the groundwork that was laid ahead of uh, you know before us um and just talking about innovation and technology and how things always improve and this time that we're in that it's amazing you know a simple thing like your glucose number you have it on your wahoo head unit now you know and it's probably easy to take it for granted but just a, a couple of years ago weren't you didn't you have to have like a second device like a second um screening device that gave you a glucose number where you had to pull it out this is like obviously yeah. like far advanced from you know pricking your finger and taking your blood sample it's etc but just those stages of of innovation and advancement yeah, you're right. That has been something which has been tremendous. And because, yeah, back when I was starting to race with the team and we were using uh, Dexcom G5, you know, we were taking the little, you know, it was like a little MP3 player kind of thing. And we were taking that in our pockets. So we were always training with, you know, something extra on us. And uh, that was just like, you know, what was normal. And you think then, because prior to that, before I had the access to that, I was doing manual glucose checks just with my glucose meter, which I kept in my jersey pocket. You know, I'd have to stop and like check my finger, you know, and see what was what. And then going into having just this little tiny, you know, uh, receiver in my uh, back pocket was just like, even that was like, a, oh, hell yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> and then, you know, but then you think about it and you're in a race and, you know, the racing conditions are difficult and, you know, now, especially so being a professional where it's just like, that is just one extra step. And to now have it so streamlined with the super sapiens that I can get the data on my head unit and just, you know, have it as like a data field is just incredible. And like, you really can't imagine how much easier it is until you experience it, that it is just really so helpful. And then the fact that like, okay, so to get these things to hook up and link, all I have to do is just like slide a button over on my phone in the application and these apps communicate with each other. And that's just like, you know, I'm so glad that people go to school to study how to do that. Um, how did you, when you were racing, were you racing at, at the time when you were, you know, taking manual finger pricks and stuff like that, were you racing and how did you control your glucose in those races? No, I wasn't racing then. I was just training, you know, I had put into my mind that I had wanted to be in touch with team Novo Nordisk and potentially race for them on the mountain bike. I didn't, you know, I had to have the invitation to come back to the road. But, uh, so I was just keeping, like I say, in the, the, uh, glucose meter in my back pocket and would just have to stop, you know, periodically. And then, you know, as you do that over time, I began to get in touch with the actual feelings that I'd have, you know, if I could feel my glucose dropping, it'd be like, okay, what are the signals that this is beginning to happen? It's like the feeling in the legs, feeling of like, um, lethargy coming on, um, or if my glucose is getting too high, it's like, okay, I'm starting to feel like a tightness in my muscles. There's not like a, things are a little bit more mechanical, a little bit less free flow and getting in touch with those feelings, which I think is still really important, even though we have all these pieces of technology to help us in our management, being able to still just be in touch with your body to know and to feel what's going on with it, I think is still really important 
And so it was kind of developing those senses to be like, okay, this is what I need to be treating myself now. I mean, other, of course I still had my glucose meter. So if I had to, I could stop and like really check to see where I'm at. Um, but yeah, you're just having to develop a whole different set of skills and instincts that otherwise you wouldn't even be paying attention to. And how did you get in touch with Steve Nova Nordisk? If you had this dream and you were towards that, how did the relationship start? Well, I think for me, it started uh, because when I was racing for Canyon Bicycles um, out of Utah, we were racing the Joe Martin stage race, which is a UCI 2.2 race in uh, out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And the first time that I did that race, I was racing against Team Nova Nordisk. And like, you know, after the opening time trial, I was um, second in the uh, U23 category to one of the Team Nova Nordisk riders. And I was like, oh, this guy, like, I'm going to get ahead of this guy today. And I think it was like Scott Ambrose or, um, yeah, I think it was Scott Ambrose who was ahead of me. And, um, and then, you know, I remember seeing him in the Peloton and you could see their CGMs and like on a few of them, their pumps. I was just thinking, it's just like, God, I wonder what that must be like, like racing and trying to be at this level with a, a condition like that. So I was having those memories when I was sitting there in the hospital bed. And um, then I gave myself like some time to build up my form again and uh, really begin like formal training. And then in September, I put together like my race resume, you know, my... Uh, what do you, what do you people on the, this part of the world call it? Your CV? CV. Curriculum. Began putting together my CV and uh, sent it out to, uh, who was the, who was it then? It was, uh, I think, Amber Medley. And um, she saw it and forwarded it to uh, Morgan Brown. And um, then Thomas Brown, Morgan's husband got in contact with me and was like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm looking at your resume and, uh, it looks like you actually have quite a lot of experience on the road. Would you be interested in coming back and racing road bikes full time? And I was like, Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I like, <laughs> I am, I am so in for that. Did you, that have, your, just the did you have your dream that... job at Trader Joe's at this, at this point? Oh yeah. At this point I was still at Trader Joe's, but everybody at Trader Joe's already knew that like deep down I was a cyclist <laughs> and, <laughs> and so when I told my boss that like I had this offer to go race, then it was just like big hugs all around. Um, but yeah, so uh, they'd asked if I wanted to race road bikes full time. And I was like, well, yes. And they like flew me out to Atlanta, which I thought was crazy because I was then it's just like, well, I don't know if I can afford to like, fly to atlanta and they're just like no, no no we'll we'll buy your ticket and you can go and i was already then just like oh my god this is this is crazy because you know in the u.s when you're growing up and you're trying to be a racer like it's hard because racing is so expensive and cycling is so expensive and so as a young adult you're just like always broke because you're trying to afford you know your hobby and your lifestyle and it's just you know it's tough like you have no spare money <laughs> and so when it's like somebody was like hey we'll fly you out here to you know 
come meet us and like, we'll see if you, if you got it. I was like, wow, that is amazing. And so I, yeah, I just jumped at the opportunity and um, they decided that uh, I'd be good enough to get on their development team. And I signed the contract with them and was just like, yeah, that was like, that was so sweet. That was, I still remember that day of just being like, so goddamn happy. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah. And then the, the journey with team Nova Nordisk started. What were those first couple of years like on the Devo team? It was tough. You know, the, uh, there was still like uh, a part of me that was just so excited. And I think that what, like, I guess coming back to perspective, I think that one of the biggest talents that I had was just to maintain a positive perspective on everything, no matter like what was going on around us, no matter what the racing situations were and to be able to like, build the team up through having like a, a realistic positive influence and have that be impactful in our racing dynamics. And um, so basically what like the on the ground situation was that we all lived together under one roof. I mean, in the first year I was had like this, I lived in this little shack in the backyard with Sam Brand and uh, Oliver Beringer and uh <laughs> And uh, on Sunset Avenue in uh, Athens, Georgia, and the other guys lived in the house up front. And, you know, so it's like all the guys are under basically one roof. And um, and it was interesting to me because all these guys were from other parts of the world, like Uzbekistan, Spain, um, England and, uh, you know, other parts of Europe. And it was just like, and Australia, New Zealand. And it was just like, you get all those cultures of young men under one roof and it is just like drama. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, it it is simple as just like, everybody has different hours for eating dinner. And so (laughs) you could have, you know, your guys from, you know, New Zealand, Australia, who are just like done cooking at, and they're ready to wind down and go to bed by 10 o'clock and that's when the Spaniards need to be up and like getting dinner started. (laughs) So Uh, so you have, you have these differences of culture, which just makes things hilarious. And like, I remember this time there was these guys that were on the team. They weren't on the team now, but they, they're the Spaniards and they had uh, one of the refrigerators. Cause there are like six refrigerators in this place, obviously for all the guys. And one of the refrigerator doors was just full of bacon. Like, I mean, full <laughs> of bacon. And I'm going to these guys and I was like, guys, what are you thinking? You're having so much bacon in the house right now. What, what are you going to do with all this? And he looked at me and said, man, it's not bacon. It's jamón. get out of here (laughs) get out of here right now. It's not jamón. (laughs) and yeah and so you know that's like that first year was just so eye-opening and so fun and then the second year we changed um where we lived and we moved to uh coming georgia which is like um i guess like in 45 minutes north of atlanta and that's like i think socially that was very difficult but in terms of 
developing like more uh, discipline for everybody. And like, it was the best thing that could have happened for the team. I mean, especially on the development team now where you see them as like, you know, a good continental UCI continental team who are like doing well in races and they're disciplined. They're like getting the best results they've ever had. You're getting such good talent coming through those lines. I really think that that move to coming Georgia was the beginning of that happening because it really put into the team that like uh, just that discipline and control and like knowing that like you're going to have your coach under your roof with you, you know, you're going to be logging your weight on like a board, you know, every week so that you can see how your weight is fluctuating throughout the entire season. And I don't know. I mean, like it was obviously like very, very tough in many aspects, but also the reward from that was immense because again, like everybody kind of got like honed in on how to do their job the best they can. And when you have everybody in that collective mission of doing your jobs together, the best that you can, then there's really only success that comes from that. And, you know, you learn to really acknowledge the failures that you have along the way as building blocks towards building something better in the future. And then the experience of uh, receiving the call up to go to, to, to join the pro team after a few years in the Devo team. I mean, what was that like? Oh, that was, that was so good. That, uh, yeah. I mean, I kind of like, um, <laughs> I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but I had been notified in July of like, Hey, have you got your contract yet? And I was like, no, what contract? And they're like, oh, okay, okay. Just wait, just wait. <laughs> but then, you know, like all of August goes by and I was just kind of like still working, obviously, like working on the bike and like training and getting ready to go do this awesome block of racing in Turkey. And um, then, you know, I got an email from Vasily and was like, Hey, Logan, I think uh, we need to have uh, a chat on the phone. Um, let me know when you're available. I'll give you a call. And I was like, I'm available like right now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so Vasily called me and made me the offer. And, you know, in that conversation, was just like, look, it's going to be much easier for you if you move to Europe and um, just for the racing and everything. And I was just like, say less, you know, that is exactly what I want to be doing. And um yeah, and it's just been really like the uh, the blossom of something really beautiful in life, and um, like a again like the opportunity just keeps building and growing, and um, yeah, I'm just uh, yeah, I'm so grateful for it. It's really so wonderful, and just like there is like the personal feeling of like all right, yes, you, you're working on your path of like what you've been wanting to do your whole life. And like, this is, you now get to see what that looks like. And that is just, yeah, it's a, it's incredible. Um, and you know, like you still have to show up every day, you know, it's not just like something where that you're like, all right, you achieved it. And now you're like all the work's done because you, you did it. It's like, no, now you actually have to really go do it. <laughs> and, and that was going to be my question every, every day. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the pressure of having to perform as a high-level athlete, you know, wanting to inspire this community that takes so much 
away from what you do and you know they encourage they're inspired they learn um on like on the hard days because you do have a lot of hard days how do you balance all of that for me i think that it really goes full circle because they're the people that we work and aim towards inspiring and just the the overall mission of the team and what we set out to do really serves as inspiration for me on the bike you know when i'm like in a really tough spot or like you know struggling to get into a workout it's just like you know this is bigger than you and uh then also just maintaining the perspective of like we've talked about earlier and kind of you know theme throughout this is like the perspective of just like this is a really great position to be in and when it's tough and you're like not wanting to get into it or do it because it's like raining out or like it's cold whatever or you're just like not feeling good it's just like it could be way worse <laughs> it could uh, you know yeah there's, there's plenty of examples to list of how, how it could be much worse. Um, but yeah, then the, uh, the bit of, uh, just being able to live up the dream of getting on your bike. And like, I used to tell myself like as a teenager, when I was racing mountain bikes and like beginning my road racing adventures. And I tell myself that if I get to the point in my life where my primary responsibility is just to try and be fast on a bike that I would basically be retired because that would just be heaven. And <laughs> so when, <laughs> so when I'm like showing up for a day where it's just like, ah, oh, damn, I don't know if I want to do this. Then it's just like, remember what you told yourself? Like if your only responsibility had to just be being fast on a bike, the how fulfilling that would be. And it's like, oh yeah, 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 you're right. It actually still is. But then, you know, along with that, there are genuinely days where you're just like, your body is just fatigued and there's no getting around that. Like there's no mind game that you can play with yourself to get you past the fact that you are just gen genuinely tired. And that's when you have to like actually step in and be like, okay, we're going to actually like really take the rest that we need right now. You communicate with your coaches to make sure that, you know, you know that you're all on the same page and but really like it's time to just relax and like let the body heal itself because when you're training you're just breaking your muscles down and you know the amount that you can break them down and then recoup after that is really what's going to make you stronger better athlete plus managing like how your mind deals with that kind of stress but um if you can really just acknowledge the fact that okay i have to rest my body really actually just needs it then then you also get into like a more uh more empowered state of control in your lifestyle and your training and you know your career as a whole because i feel oh. like if you miss that like the amount of burnout the like the rate at which you could burn out from it is like so high yeah no that's true um and again i wonder with you like if it is the trajectory in life that you've had you're going through the the like hardness of being a professional athlete at your age now 30 31 um you know would a 20 year old would a 21 year old handle it the same and i mean the sport is at such a level where 20 21 22 year olds are winning the tour de france and i often wonder how they do that how they handle that pressure when i was that age 
I didn't even know how to spell my name, man. I was a kid. Like, I didn't <laughs> know my left from my right, you know. Um, yeah. I'm always fascinated by you guys who are high-performance athletes, you know, and how you handle the pressure of all of this. It's it's very impressive and inspiring. Uh, thank you. The uh, I'm actually very curious as well because you're right. You make a great point that the age of, you know, the, uh, the successful race-winning cyclists now are like, 20 years old sometimes like 19 even and that is something which is just unusual for the sport and but again like these kids are coming out with like all of this strength and intensity and what i wonder is just how long they can do it you know is that something that you know now this new generation of athletes is fully capable of dealing with uh, for a long extended period of time and seasons. Um, no, it's going to be very curious to watch to see how, how that happens or is like their peak going, you know? Uh, yeah. It's just a lot of, you could speculate a lot about how it'll go, but I'm very curious to watch it, watch it happen. Yeah. I think time will tell. And I think it's all about environment being in a good, healthy environment that values health mm-hmm. above results mm-hmm. and, and, and return on investment. Um, and most of these high-level teams have got excellent staff when it comes to, you know, yeah. scientists, medical performance coaches, really, really high level. Um, but time will tell. Yeah, we'll see. I think, you know, we evolve, sport evolves, humans evolve, and you get mm-hmm. bet, you know, youth get better and better because of also access to knowledge and being fast-tracked thanks to technology and all of that. So, but it is Absolutely interesting. Right. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how the sport, how the sport grows. Yeah. Um, Logan, thank you for your time, man. Um, thanks for opening up a bit about your story. It's very interesting. I always love hearing it. Um, and yeah, thanks for taking the time out of your your busy schedule. I know you're getting ready to head off to the, the team's training camp in Spain now. So thanks for making the time and Hope chatting yeah. to us today. No problem. Thank you, Zalan. It was a real pleasure. Quick, quick, before we go, I'm looking forward to training camp and how has the winter been? So what can we expect this season? The uh, the winter has actually been really nice, um, much better than the previous winter. Um, I'm feeling confident in the training. I feel really good on the bike. And, um, you know, training camp's always like the real like, you know, show and tell moment where you're just like, all right, how good has training actually been this winter? And, you know, when you go up with the rest of your teammates and, you know, it's everybody's flexing on each other. <laughs> and so... I'm actually, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be super nice. We're also getting like the new kits from Santic and um, it's always good to like get the first try on the first rides and the new gear and everybody's looking fresh. You know, you got a whole new vibe for the year with the new kits and um, it's just a great way to get things started and being all together, going through the trainings, connecting afterwards. It's, it's going to be good. And I think with the way that the race schedule is looking this year, that, uh, there's going to be some good opportunities for us. Amazing. Logan, thanks again for your time and yes to an amazing season. Yeah. Thank you, Zalan. Thank you. There you go. That's Logan Fippen. Uh, Tim, you and I are both so enamored with his story. We were saying we had to hold back in the intro and sort of not give his whole story away and allow him to tell his whole story in, in the interview, which he did so brilliantly. Exactly. I mean, he's packed so much in to his 30 years already, he's a guy you don't have to worry about. Like, you you know, if he gets on the bike, he's going to be fine. Um, if he's not racing, he's going to be fine. 
when his career ends, he's going to be fine. He's like he's, he's got no fear. His approach to life is admirable and in, in, inspirational. And with or without diabetes, I think he would be that guy. Um, you know, Logan a guy, is a guy who's comfortable in any situation. As you said before, we both love working with him. Um, and he's lucky because he looks like a movie star as well. Um, you know, but he's... He's a joy to be around at races, at camp. Novo Nordis love having him out there, uh, speaking to the diabetes community. Um, and he's a guy you could you could drop him in just into any situation, and he's going to be fine. He's going to be running with it. Absolutely, couldn't have said it better myself. Let us know who you'd like us to have next on the Team Novo Nordis podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Team Novo Nordis. DM us there. We are approaching a hundred thousand followers. Get on there and help us get to that milestone. Tim, I'm delaying you from going out for a bike ride. One that you deserve big time. I know it's zero degrees in Italy today. How 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 long are you planning on riding? Uh, it depends how long I can deal with pedaling squares for. Um, but just I'll try and get out for an hour or so and we'll see. <laughs> oh, enjoy it, man. As I say, you deserve it. Enjoy the bike out there. We're all about healthy lifestyles at Team Nova Nordis. And as you can see, even the staff, down, right down to the mechanics, the sonniers, we grab our bikes at camp, we head off for a ride. Healthy lifestyles. Tim, thanks so much for this episode. Enjoy the day, mate, and we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Zylon. Have a good day as well. Bye, everyone.